Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. As we continue in our book of Exodus, God is faithful to his covenant. Last week, we went over Exodus as a 10,000 foot, so to speak, a kind of an overview. Today, we're going to be looking at the first two chapters of Exodus. You may want to turn real quickly, let's see, to Genesis chapter 15, for that's where we're going to be, and then put your your finger, your page there and finger there, and then you will go back to Exodus chapter 1, but we'll be in Genesis 15 in a moment. Imagine, if you will, you have grown up hearing about the wonderful promises that God made to Abraham, the father of your nation. You grew up listening to the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his 12 sons. How God provided time and time again and how God will bless your family and use you to be a blessing to the nations. For 400 years, these stories and promises have been shared and passed down through the generations. They have been a source of pride and purpose for each generation. Yet now it seems so hollow and so bittersweet as you get up before dawn each morning to go work the fields, construct cities and storage facilities, another brutal task. You come home each evening exhausted, beat up, and fearful for your family. Fearful that your wife may give birth to a male child. If so, what would you do? Will you hide him? If so, where? If so, how? Or will you kill him to protect the rest of the family? Your thoughts stray to the unthinkable thought that there is no way you will bring up a child into this world. And in shame, you close your eyes, praying that your wife will either give birth to a girl or that God will make her barren. You know, we all want a better life for our child, for our children. We want them to be better, better, better educated, have more opportunities, better careers with a meaningful purpose. Yet what if God has other plans? What if God's purposes for your children causes them to endure suffering, captivity, and maybe even death? How would you feel about God then? Would you trust him? Would you praise and give him worship? As we open up to the pages of the book of Exodus, we find that the children of Abraham are not living their best life. They're not living a life of blessing that they have been promised. Instead of living in the land of promise, they are living in a foreign land. Instead of ruling as kings and priests, they are forced into slavery. In all of this, the question remains, where is God? Has he forgotten Has he neglected his promise to Abraham and to his children? Father, these are good questions. And I think there are probably some of us that sometimes are tempted to think the same thing. Where is God? 
in my suffering? Where is God in my pain? Where are the promises of God? Where is the wonderful life that he's promised me? We're tempted to deny you. To think that your character is less than what it is. So open our minds and hearts that we may learn from Exodus. That we may learn from the children of Israel. Who in so many ways are examples to us. And in many ways reflect our attitudes today. Lord, let us approach your word seriously with the privilege of knowing that it's your word, your revelation to us, that it is relevant to us. Even the lives of those ancient uh, Israelites, Lord, that we may find hope in your word and in your truth and in your goodness. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. One theologian remarks that the book of Exodus is about God's presence among the people of Israel. And it continues the narrative of the book of Genesis, which ends with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Egypt. However, the opening of Exodus informs us that these descendants have become so numerous that they have been enslaved and are facing extinction, extinction at the hand of a king. Exodus is a story of God delivering the Israelites from bondage into a free existence characterized by the continuing, continuous presence of God with a fair and just society. They are not living that today or living that then, now as we open the book of Exodus. But we know that that's God's plan for them. Last week, we just, we learned that in Exodus, we see the providence of God on display, his faithfulness, the glory of God, and the person of God. All these are on display in its pages. And in these two opening chapters of Exodus, we're going to see all four of them on display as Moses continues the story of the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Exodus, the focus switches from the sons of Jacob to their descendants, the 12 tribes of Israel. In these two chapters, we read that God remains faithful to his promises to Abraham as the family grows and even suffers from slavery in Egypt. Now, there's three observations I'd like to make as we open up to Exodus. The first thing that we see is that the family becomes a large nation as a result of God's providential blessing. Now, again, as we open to the book of Exodus, we read that a new Pharaoh, one who knew nothing of Joseph or God's promises, ruling over Egypt. The Egyptians fear the Hebrews that they would grow into a mighty nation and join with another nation to overtake them. So they begin to force them to work as slaves. Day after day, the Israelites worked in the heat of the sun and sand. The taskmasters whipping their backs, sweat stinging their wounds. Yet we find that God does not forget his children. While in Genesis, we found that God has been displaying his character through the world he has created and in his interaction with the human race. And in the later chapters, the, the focus with the four great men of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and how God is working through Abraham and his family to accomplish a purpose of sending a Savior to redeem the human race from the curse of sin and death that was promised in Genesis 3. So again, as a reminder from last week, as we read through Exodus, we must keep that in mind. As the narrative of the story is now moving from the call of Abraham to the creation of the nation of Israel that will lead to the chosen seed, Jesus. Exodus continues this story. 
And we see God's providence in helping them come a large family in the fact that God blesses them in propagation. Look at verses 5 of chapter 1 of Exodus 1. If you're there, Exodus chapter 1. Now all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. From 12 to 70 to a multitude. Numbers chapters 1 states that there were 603,550 men that were 20 years and older, not counting the men from the tribe of Levi. Some estimates put the total number of Israelites, men, women, and children, that left Egypt as up to 2 million. From 12 to 70 to up to 2 million. Verse 7 follows the creation mandate that was given to Adam and Eve as well as to Jacob in Genesis 35 is to be fruitful, to multiply, and fill the earth. And they have done that. In Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17, God had promised to Abraham that he would be a father of many nations and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. However, God had also told Abraham that that blessing would not be without suffering. So I had told you earlier, turn to Genesis 15. Maybe you still have that with us, with you. We read it last week. In this passage, we read of God's promise to Abraham concerning his descendants. Genesis 15, look at verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. You see the hand of God's providence. But he says in verse 14, But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possession. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Since they left Canaan and settled into Egypt, things have not gone as they have expected. At first they were valued guests of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, yet soon after Joseph's death, their standing in the community took a downturn. Let's begin reading in Exodus chapter 1 once again in verse 18, or verse 8. Moses writes, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who knew not Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So in verse 11, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, uh, fight, uh, Pitam and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they were multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so that they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, this last sentence here, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. But through all this, God providentially blesses them in propagating their ancestors, or propagating as a people. The Israelites went from welcome guests to forced slavery, from peaceful coexistence to hateful oppression. Yet through it all, we see that God is faithful by providentially blessing them, by causing them to grow into a nation. 
In verse 9, Israel is first identified as a nation when Pharaoh says, the people of Israel, they are a united people. They are a recognized group. In this passage, you read that fear, and this is important. In this passage, you read that fear and self-preservation leads to racism, prejudice, and slavery. And let me tell you as an editorial note on the side that that's still the case. Fear and self-preservation leads to sin, racism, prejudice, and slavery. When slavery did not curb the population growth of the Israelites, we read that Pharaoh tries a different tactic, which leads to a second way God blesses the children of Abraham in divine protection. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them who was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, that was two rocks that they would put down there. If you are, if, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is his daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded him, but let the children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? Let the male children live. And the midwife said in verse 19 to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Pharaoh here orders murder by forcing the abortion of all male babies. In verse 15, the Hebrew wives are given honor by Moses by identifying them by name, Shifra and Puah. Most likely, these were leading representatives of the midwives as they could not possibly attend such a large population of Hebrew women by themselves. But Moses records that they feared God more than Pharaoh, and they choose to obey God rather than men. Though years have passed, there are some that are still worshiping and fearing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are women to honor, and they're honored throughout history. In scripture, one of the themes of Exodus is that Israel is called to fear God above any other ruler, nation, or circumstances. This is a good application of what Peter would later say in Acts chapter 5. We must obey God rather than men. And let me give you a pastoral note here on the side. There may come become a time when you and I are asked to make the same type of choice. Obey God or obey men. To these Hebrew women, they were following what Jesus would later teach in Luke chapter 20. Render to Caesars the things that are Caesar and the things to God, the things that are God. Would you join me in praying that God may grant us the blessing of biblical discernment and wisdom in choosing correctly. Fear, resentment, convenience. As I think of what's going on here, I cannot help but think of what's going on today with Planned Parenthood and others who abort children. Why do they abort children? I think three reasons. Fear. Fear of what the unknown. Fear of how the child may change their life. Maybe it's resentment because they're not ready. It's an unplanned pregnancy and they resent what the child may do, whether what it may do to their body or what it may do to their life and their career. And then convenience. They just don't have time for a child. It blows my mind, again, this is me speaking, 
of feminists who support and protect the killing of baby girls. For now, we live in a society that's not killing baby boys, but killing baby girls throughout the world. It blows my mind that there's those who stand for justice and those who want to help those that are neglected, those that are marginalized in society. But yet they're willing to stand up for those who want to abort children with Down syndrome or genetic disease. Why? Fear, resentment, convenience. And my concern is many times we, the church, we as individuals have been silenced. And I'm afraid that there are many of us today that will stand just as guilty as Pharaoh and the Egyptians because of our silence and inaction on the killing of those that God created. So I would ask as just a side note, you and I must not be silent. You and I must not be inactive in the killing of God's children. We must be like these Hebrew midwives that fear God and choose to obey Him. So pray with me. What has God called us to do? Well, that's my pastoral note for the day. Through these Hebrew midwives, God protects His children from the evil attentions of Egyptian rulers, and may God use us in the same way. Whether the midwives are telling the truth or being deceptive is not moralized here in this portion of Scripture, but points that God will use diverse ways to protect His children. Interestingly, because of their faithfulness and their fear of God, Moses tells us in verse 20 that God dwelt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and continued to grow very strong. And not only that, it says because the midwives fear God, He gave them families. But yet in verse 22, due to the failure of the midwives to comply with Pharaoh's orders, the Egyptian populace is now encouraged and commanded to kill any Hebrew boys they find. Look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. We are not told how this was to come about, but you can almost imagine how it put the fear into the heart of every Hebrew mom and dad. Pharaoh pitted one race against another race. He pit neighbor against neighbor, breeding fear, hatred, and contempt, forbidding one to love one, another's, uh, one another. And let me tell you, we live in that society today, and I'm just going to let that set and let God do with it what he wants to. Because I see the same thing happening today. Pitting one against another. Now this leads us to why God providentially blesses Abraham by increasing his family into a large nation. Because God had a purpose in blessing them and making them into a large family. God had made a special covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. We read of this in our study in Genesis. It was to bless him and all the nations of the world through Abraham's children. 
He confirmed that covenant with his son Isaac in Genesis 26 and with his grandson Jacob in Genesis 28 and 35. God's plan with you and I must remember was to send a redeemer to deliver his children from their sin. This was accomplished through Jesus, an Israelite, a Hebrew child. It was through the nation of Israel that God would provide salvation. Later in Exodus chapter 19, God promises that Israel, that they would be a kingdom of priests to the nations with a restoration of God's presence among them. Pastor John MacArthur notes that the covenant also specifically promised a geographical, recognizable territory to the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. Now as we are in Exodus, this has not happened yet but God's purposes for them still stand. As we memorized last week, or this week, last week in question two, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfections, in his glory, in his goodness, in his wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. And even in their slavery, in their suffering, at the death of their children, God is providentially moving and blessing them. He has a purpose for Israel and he blesses them ordered in order to display his providence, his faithfulness, his glory and his person. Which brings us to the second observation for us this morning. Number two, God responds to Israel's cries because of his promise to Abraham. And now we're going to jump, if you would please, to Exodus chapter 2. Look at verse 23. Jump to Exodus chapter 2. Verse 23. We have the setting. The Israelites are growing. They're being multiplied. But because of fear and self-preservation, they're enslaved. When that does not keep them from populating, they begin to kill their children. But yet God still blesses them and protects them. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, Moses writes, During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God in verse 24 and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. In verse 25, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. What a wonderful verse. In these three verses, Moses paints a picture of an almighty God who is present, engaged, compassionate, and loving towards his people. This is shown through the four action verbs used of God in which he hears, he remembers, and he saw, which reminds me of Jesus seeing the crowd and having compassion on them. And then God knew again, knowing that that word knew involves loving. Think about it for a moment going back to our introduction about that Hebrew man who is subjugated to slavery. His life is not his own. His only crime is that God had blessed him with many children, increasing their population. And another man's fear has caused his life to be hell on earth. Taught that God had blessed them and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Remembering all the stories told by their parents that God has promised. They might be reminded that around the fire, they had been taught to memorize this very blessing. 
where God says to Abraham, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourners. He's giving them possession of a true land, a physical land, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. This is God's promise to Abraham, tamed for his children. Yet 400 years have passed and gone, and life is unbearable. You live in constant fear and exhaustion. And you might question, where is God? Where are his blessings that he promised? Were all these just fairy tales that our parents told us? Where is our hope for a better life under the whip of this of the slave owner? Where is our hope for a better life? How much more can I endure? What we what have we done to deserve such treatment? And maybe even asking, does God hate me? I think there are people today that have maybe asked the same questions in your own pain, in your own suffering and your own struggles, in their despair, the children of Abraham cry out for help. For God to rescue them from their captivity. And in this passage, we are to be encouraged in the character and person of God that's in full display. For no matter how bleak life seems, no matter how much suffering you and I endure, no matter how futile our lives may be, God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows his children. King David, bring your eyes to the monitor, if you would, in Psalms chapter 98. David says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. But look at this. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth has seen the salvation of our God. Let me share with you. God is not a God of stone, but a God of reason, of intellect, and yes, a God of emotion. Though Israel may feel forgotten, neglected, and abandoned, God has not done any of those things. And maybe you're tempted to think the same way in your life struggles today. Maybe you yourself are struggling with relationships, struggling financially, struggling with health. Maybe life has just seemed like one slavery from the next, that you're just so exhausted, you're so fearful, and you don't know if life is ever going to get any better. And you begin tempted to doubt the goodness of God, the truth of God's word, and the person of God. Let me share with you, don't. If you feel neglected, if you feel abandoned, let me share with you that the Bible tells us that he is an ever-present help in time of need. The Psalms are great Psalms that share with us God's glory and God's wisdom. There are even Psalms, Brandon, that we need to write some blues. God even sings the blues sometimes, or David does. Why? Because life is difficult. But God hears. God sees. 
God remembers and God knows. So God hears the cry for help. He remembers the covenant that he made with them. He sees the plight of their situation and God knows just exactly what to do. They need to deliver someone to rescue them. And this brings us to our third and last point. It's number three. Our third observation is God prepares Moses to deliver his people from Egypt. Let's go back to verse one of chapter two. In this passage, we see God's faithfulness in providing, protecting, and preparing Moses to be the deliverer. It begins as all good biographies do with the sacrificial love and the hope of a mother in verse one. In other words, we're going to see that mom provides a way of escape. Look at verse one of chapter two. Now a man from the house of Levi, we are told, went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with vitamin and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done. Now, we all know this part of the story. We've seen it in countless movies. We read it in countless Bible stories. But you see the sacrificial love and hope of a mother who does not obey the Pharaoh's edict, who hides the child, who instead of letting it be killed, hides it even from her neighbors. But there gets to a point where the baby's cry and the baby's growth is no longer something she could hide. So with hope, she builds a little vessel for it, hoping that someone will find it and be able to take care of the child. She provides a way of escape. In verse 5, we see God provides an ally, someone who will love and care for that child. Look at verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and she sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. She knew where this child was coming from. She knew what her father's etiquette was. She knew what was supposed to be done. She's right there at the Nile River. Not one of the ladies or anyone else would have blamed her if she would have just took Moses and said, oh, I need this basket and throw him into the Nile River and let him drown. She would be perfectly within her right. She would probably feel justified and righteous and look for a way to get, uh, get uh, kudos from her dad and from the girls around her. But she took her life in the hands and the fact that even her ladies are waiting are there and they see her. She recognizes very quickly that this is a Hebrew child. But yet her heart took pity as God provides an ally. But not only that, as we continue in verse seven, God provides a reunification with his mother and child. Now, when I was young and knowing this story, I never realized this part. I mean, I read it, but I never realized what this next passage is going to say. And I still remember, I don't know how old I was when I read this passage and I realized what happens here. God is now going to actually reunify the mom and the child. Look at verse seven. Then his sister, now his sister Miriam, we know her name now, is that he, she follows. And as soon as she sees that the baby is taken and that the baby is safe, she said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? In other words, this, this Pharaoh's daughter is not going to be able to, 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 to feed the baby. So it was their practice to find a nursemaid. You need a nursemaid, someone who can do that. 
And Miriam comes up and says, hey, I think I have a solution to your problem. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And she went and called the child's mother. Who's the child? Moses. I ne- I had never clicked on me before. Hey, I have someone ready. Now, as mentioned, she, now did Pharaoh's uh, daughter have access to Egyptian nursemaids? Of course. But again, God. That's all I can say. And verse 9, the Pharaoh's daughter said, take her, or said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. Mom, she even gets paid for taking care of her own child. What about that? So the woman took the child and nursed him. Wow. What a great reunification. But then as we go in verse 10, God provides a future for this redeemer that's going to come. Look at verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. Not sure what age that might have been, probably four or five, maybe uh, around there. He became her son and she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. He, she provides a future. This is a baby who was born without any. He should have been cast into the Nile River. He should have been bashed in dead, but yet God provides so much and even a future for him. Why? Because God has a plan for this young man. What's interesting, and this is what I love about Scripture, is that the means of God's faithfulness, the ways, the means in which God's faithfulness and providence is shown, is not shown through strong uh, soldiers and men and kings, but through women. The Hebrew midwives, Moses' mother and his sister, and Pharaoh's daughter. In Exodus chapter 2, as we continue... In verse 11, we read that Moses now identifies with this heritage. In verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He recognized, hey, this is my heritage. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, and he hit him in sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. What's known? The fact that he had killed an Egyptian. Now, Moses here skips through his early years of infancy, his learning, his training, his years at, uh, years at, the, uh, at the palace, straight to two events that will shape his life forever. At this point, <coughs> excuse me, he's nearly 40 years of age, according to Stephen's recount in, recount in Acts chapter 7. There in Acts chapter 7, verse 23, Stephen recites the history of, no, history of Israel, noting that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. Remember, we're, we're talking about how God is providentially preparing Moses for the task that God will call him to. He was 40 years old when it came in his heart to visit his brothers. Even though he grew up in the palace, he understood where he came from. Whether that was a well-known secret or hidden between him and Pharaoh's daughter, I do not know. But it says the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wrong, he defended this oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Why? Again, we now are going to get a glimpse of, of Moses' mind. Where it says, Stephen says, he supposed that his brother would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. 
but they did not understand. In this verse in Acts, we get a glimpse into the character of Moses. He seems to have grown up into a man that felt deeply about justice, oppression, and desired to be a peacemaker. How this came to be, we are not told, but the writer of Hebrew does tell us that by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. God had been working in the heart of Moses. God is preparing this man to do something wonderful. His attempt at protection and peacemaking backfire against him. And in Acts chapter 2, that's where we go back. In verse 15, we read that he flees from Egypt as a fugitive. Exodus chapter 2, look at verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of Moses killing the Egyptian, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the trough to water their, their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Once again, a man of justice, a one who's going to take the role of, a, of against an oppressor. Verse 18, when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, well, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Verse 20, he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses and his daughter, or gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Here we read of Moses escaping the wrath of Moses. Once again, serving as a protector, this time to seven women, finding a home, having a wife with whom he has a son. Interestingly, he meets his future wife at a well, just like Isaac and Jacob before him. Young men, young ladies, head to the water cooler. It seems that's where the action is. At first, the mistake, they mistake him for an Egyptian, but over time, as we enter the next few chapters of Exodus, we'll see that the next 40 years in Midian will transform him into something much more, the deliverer of God's children. Now, in our passage today, I want to bring this home. We see a God that is faithful to his promises to Abraham and his children. At first, it seems like they've been abandoned. It seems like they've been neglected. No matter the circumstances, no matter the consequences of our decisions, or the amount of suffering you and I must endure, God does not forsake his children. Amen? Even when we're tempted to doubt the word of God, even when we're tempted to doubt the goodness of God or the character of God, he is faithful. God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. Will you, will you grab on that to, onto that today? There are many similarities now between Moses, the deliverer of Israel, and Jesus, the deliverer of the elect. Moses foreshadows Jesus Christ in his role as a lawgiver, a mediator between God and his people, as a prophet who will declare the will of God. And we'll see this as we go through Exodus. In these matters, Jesus Christ brought to perfection the work that was begun with Moses. 
Now, there are two main parallels as we look at the emphases of Moses and Jesus Christ. Moses' mother hid him to escape the slaughter decree by Pharaoh. And Mother Mary and Joseph had to, had to hide uh, Jesus from the attempt of Herod to slaughter the children. Moses, an Israelite, finds exile in Egypt as a child and then, a, and then as an adult in Midian. While Joseph, uh, Jesus finds, ex, or finds exile in Egypt for safety. Moses, like Jesus, had no set of home in his own country. But there are also some similarities between the children of Israel and you and I today. We are both elect children of God. We are both enslaved in need of a deliverer. Israel by Egypt and us by sin. We both are called to mediate God's kingdom on earth as priests and called to be holy. We both have been promised a wonderful inheritance. We both can be tempted to believe that God has forgotten his promise. Take your Bibles very quickly, if you would, and turn to uh, 2 Peter, if you would. From our scripture reading earlier, we can see that our bodies yearn and groan like all of creation for the redemption of our body. We long for that promise that God says that those that he, he's justified, he'll sanctify, or he'll, he, those he called, he will glorify. And we yearn for that. In 2 Peter verse 3, I, I mean that we must not be like Israel and doubt God's promise to deliver us from the presence of sin. That's you and I's battle. That's the enslaving that we still seem to fall into, though we've been broken free from that power. Many times we too can forget God's wonderful promise to return and unite with us with him. Look at verse 3 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter reminds us, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Like the Israelites, we say, where is God's coming? Where are his promises? Where are his blessings? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But yet, we like the Israelites will say, things seem to be getting worse. But Peter reminds us in verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Verse 9 is our key. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the, Lord of day, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. May we too... May we too, in our fight with sin, with our struggle and enduring suffering, cry out to God for help. I pray that on your bed, as you close your eyes, that you too will cry out for help, never forgetting the promises of our inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Let us find strength and encouragement even from the ancient pages of Exodus, that God hears, God sees, God remembers, and God knows. Let me leave you with this last word of encouragement from David, found in Psalms chapter 40 on the monitor, where he says, I waited patiently for the Lord.
and he inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry blog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. And he put a new song on my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many, 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 many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. May God put this song, put this patience, put this trust in a God who is faithful, a God who is providential, a God who displays his glory and his person, even in our lives today. Let's every head bowed and every head closed as the worship team comes up. Just take a moment for you just to process what we said. I've said quite a bit. I said it pretty quickly. Where do you stand today? Do you identify with the Israelites in the fact that you question where is God? Maybe you identify with the Egyptians. Maybe fear and self-preservation has led you to thought processes, to a heart that is hardened towards those that are different than you. That you haven't loved your neighbor as yourself. Would you look back to a Redeemer? They're looking forward. But you and I stand in a wonderful place is that we look back to Redeemer who has delivered us and one day will come and our salvation will be full. Until that day, let's remember that God is our help, our deliverer. Father, I pray that you just be with us this morning. Do your work. I have said much. And I pray now that the Holy Spirit will take whatever I've done, make it sufficient for your purposes. Lord, may it be the means in which our hearts will be encouraged. Father, we'll be strengthened. Father, we'll be emboldened. Father, that you would give us the desire to serve you more, to choose you rather than the world. Break our hearts. Father, if it is tented with any hardness of heart, if any tent of, of self-preservation or fear keeps us from loving our neighbor as ourself, Lord, let that be exposed and may we humbly confess it and Father, repent. Let us see any ways in which we deny you or doubt you. Lord, expose that we may confess it and repent. And Father, let us trust and rest in your good promises that you are a God who is not slow to fulfill it. But Lord, in your timing, give us the strength to be patient. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.